Welcome to The Rise. I'm your host, Mark Basil. This is the podcast where we talk industry, we talk business, we talk shit, we motivate, and we get things done. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of The Rise, episode number four. This is where we talk to my good friend, Chris Mangello. Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to last week's episode, episode number three, where I talk about my favorite F word, failure, how to embrace it, how to work around it, how to work with it in order to get to that next level of success that you are looking to achieve in your life. I also want to thank everybody who continues to tune in week in and week out each and every week. Our listenership is getting larger. It is growing. So I would like to thank each and every one of you who have subscribed, who have downloaded, who do listen each and every week. means a lot. Uh, As you've heard me mention in the past, this podcast has been many months in the making, and I really, truly hope each and every one of you enjoy listening to it each week as much as I enjoy putting the content out each week. With that being said, let's move on to this week's episode. This week's episode, we have a very talented singer, songwriter, very, very, very close friend of mine, Chris Mangello. I'm just going to kind of talk about uh, his musical influences growing up, how he knew this is the business that was made for him, how he eventually got his start in this business, different bands that he's played with in the past years, and all an awesome, awesome, awesome opportunity he had a few years back to partner up with Les Paul and produce an album that eventually garnered itself a Grammy. We're also going to touch base on what he's currently working on, as well as how he's keeping himself relevant in the industry today, and what he's doing to get himself one step closer to his dream today than he was yesterday. So thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Rise, and let's get to it. Okay, now let me ask you real quick, because I want to do like a whole introduction here for you. What, what what did you win a Grammy on? So I personally didn't win a Grammy. The album won You're, a Grammy. Okay, so what album was that? You were a producer on we that called, album. Uh, we did a duet album with Les Paul, a um, friend of mine who was the producer, um, did, came up with the concept. He was the producer of the album, Bob Cudarella. And he um, asked me to come out to L.A. He goes, I'm trying to get this album a record deal, right? So he had the concept, but he didn't get the record deal. He said, come out to L.A., you know, on your Mm -hmm. own dime. And I took a gamble and went out to L.A. And we, um, we, he got the record deal for the album. And then we hit the, you know, the pavement running uh, for this album, which in turn came became Les Paul and Friends, American Made, World Played, and it, the album won two Grammys. And um, you know what we did out there is like it, it was like, you know, obviously before it was like two thousand five, six, something like that, and we had Grammy parties. We hit Grammy parties and tried to recruit people to be duet people on the album. So I talked with everybody from members of Metallica, Jane's Addiction, Incubus, wow. uh, Van Hart, 
yeah, Ben Harper, Robert Randolph, who's like, Robert Randolph said to me, Robert Randolph from the family band, he's like, oh, why don't you call John? I'm like, who? He's like, John Mayer. It was like, when you associate with that, it was like everything was gold. You know, and that's, it was like we were on such a high that every, everything was attainable. You know, I would ask somebody and I, right. you know, so we were working on the album, we were working at Capitol Records in the, you know, Capitol famous, the studio there in the tower sure. in LA. And, um, you know, it was everybody where I was working with Jeff Beck and, you know, uh, Jeff Beck is in the studio and he f- completes his, his, you know, one track. And then we were all in the studio and he's just trying to decide, like we're trying to decide songs. And I'm just giving my, you know, my view on it. And mm-hmm. he's like, what song should we do? I gave him a suggestion. I'm like, oh, why don't we do this song? And he's like, who did that? And I said, Eric Clapton. And he goes, does he still play guitar? You know, it was really like... <laughs> does he still play guitar? Like, that's what he's known for. Yeah, but Jeff Beck is, I don't know, in my opinion, a better player. I'm sure a lot of people would say that. But it was okay. really funny. You know, he just did just didn't give a shit. And so, um, yeah, go so ahead. aside from aside from Jeff Beck, who else did you get the opportunity to work closely with while producing this album for Les Paul? Oh, so um, Edgar Winter, uh, Billy Gibbons. I worked with uh, Cindy Lauper. Like a lot of them oh, didn't wow. make me cut. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think who else did I work with. Um, I went to uh, Josh Stone, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. I worked. I became very close with Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls on that album. Oh wow! Goo Goo yeah. Dolls, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. So then him and I were, you know, but in time you lose touch with people and lives change. Yeah. And, Especially in this business, especially in the entertainment business, because it pulls you in so yeah. many different directions. Steve Lukather, Toto. You know, there's a couple of people I'm still in touch with, like Steve Lukather, Toto, Billy Gibbons. You know, Billy yeah. Gibbons was, yeah, Billy Gibbons was almost going to be the reverend at my wedding. It was gonna be, you know, it's pretty cool. <laughs> really? How cool would that have been? Yeah, that was pretty cool. So, you know, so me- I, I mean, like, yeah, generally friends, and it led up to other things. And it led up to, because I was like the coordinator, production coordinator, it led up to Les Paul celebrating Carnegie Hall his 90th birthday. So the guy, a different producer, called me because I had all the contacts. You know, and I give sure. um particular instance, I mean, I mean, I was sitting in my, I was driving in my car with Joe Satriani, who's famous in the guitar world, him, his son, and his guitar tech, and we're driving, and he goes, Joe Satriani's in the back, and he says to me, we're on 57th Street in New York City, and he says to me, Chris, how can we save Eddie? Meaning Eddie Van Halen, and at that time, you know, there was rumors that Eddie Van Halen was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs. Here's one guitar god asking me about my hero, 
how can we save him? Well, I don't even know the guy, Eddie Van Halen. It was just bizarre. It was just because, right. you know, they thought you had power or whatever or whatever. They thought you were somebody. Sure. I mean, you're put into this project that has high expectations because of the brand behind it and the talent acquired for it, uh, yeah. part of which you were responsible for. And now all of a sudden, you know, your input, uh, you know, weighs its ounce in gold. Like your input is exponentially more respected and worthy than, than anybody else's. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was great. You know, it was a great experience, you know. My friend, the producer, Bob Clarella, you know, forever indebted to him for that, giving me that experience, you know? And uh, we're still close to this day, him and I, you know? And the other producer, you know, Frank Cathcart, he was uh, very great. More silent, you know, not social as much as, as we are, but he was more of the engineer producer. Very close right. guy, but not social as much as we were. You know, and um, previous to that, how I met Bob was he was uh, my teacher in the class, and he, um, you know, just took me around, and this is before the Les Paul, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I was an artist, and and I had a band beforehand, and I kind of started doing doing a solo thing with a band name, and we had some, some success. We had a, a record that we put out, I believe like around 2001. We had a number one song for 12 weeks in the Midwest. Somebody else's song. It's called Smiling Faces. And um, it, was, it was exciting. But at the time, I didn't have a band. I didn't, there was no records in the stores. You know, there's a, a million things that weren't in place, but it was an exciting time. You know, at the same time, I was teaching. And so that all that you know, it was a great experience. So let's go back a little bit. When did you first get bitten by the, the the music bug? When, like, where were you? How old were you? You know, what did you see that just kind of um, kind of overwhelmed you with all this ambition and drive? It was like, what was it exactly? Like, I know what it was for me. Uh, the moment I realized what it was, I, I was meant to do the rest of my life. Like, I can pinpoint the exact moment, the time, how old I was, where I was. Uh, what was it for you that, that, that motivated you to learn to play the guitar and to write music, to be a musician, to, to be on the music scene? What were some of your earliest memories of, um, yeah, of what inspired you? Yeah, so I mean, between my mother and my grandfather, who really listened to a lot of music, that inspired me a lot. So I was listening to, you know, I didn't like it then, you know, from my grandfather, country. Then my mother, you know, listening, you know, I, I would hear neighbors playing Wings or Elton John or something like that. And then my cousins having albums of ACDC and then, and then Van Halen and then me going to third grade for show and tell, bringing the cover of ACDC's Highway to Hell into 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 school, and the teacher saying, "Wow, Chris Mangello, those are some homely looking guys," you know. <laughs> and that was before you know I, I played anything. I'm in an early picture of me, uh, like maybe three or four, playing a guitar, but I didn't play. I played. I went. I took a guitar class at nine, but it was all older people. They didn't stick with it. 
And then one of my neighbors, who was a lot older, you know, like 15, 20 years older, played in the band. That was inspiring. That was when I lived in the Bronx. And he helped my parents get me my first acoustic guitar. And then my next, you know, and then my electric guitar. And that was around, like, 13, 14. Then I started getting into it, taking lessons, private lessons. Started getting into it. And then when it came time to look at college, I said I wanted to do music. And everybody looked at me besides my mother and grandmother and said, were you crazy? You know? (laughs) You know? And I just stuck with it. And then, you know, to college for music and transferred and, you know, lost a year. And then went to, did the typical work for the family in construction. And then my uncle told me, you want to get laid off? Things work out. I got laid off. I had unemployment. I was living at home. Before that, I was building a studio from the ground up, like an old garage, my father and yeah. uncle's family house, and had a place to just get away and just do my music and make noise and have my band and spend a lot of time contemplating, thinking, planning my future. And then, um, you know, so all all those different events, you know, but other things, you know, my cousin was taking me to see Van Halen. That was like catapulted me, you know. Sure. And, it, and Eddie Van Halen was my idol, you know, growing up. And just a whole thing. And then writing came when, you know, you, you come home, you know, hanging out with friends and this and that and partying and stuff like that. And I would write lyrics and crazy stuff. And it just happened. Right. And it happened. Yeah, it also happened from like a ninth grade English class. I started writing poetry and the teacher's like, wow, this is pretty good. And I was never very good in school because I was always fooling around. Sure. Class class. Yeah. But you know, I find, I not to digress, but I find some of the most creative people are class clowns because I was the biggest class clown, but I was always like the most creative when I was in high school. You know, I was doing, putting on independent, you know, backyard wrestling shows. I was, you know, I wrote my first short film when I was 16 years old, and that was always what my focus was on. Like, I remember being in, on the football field in a huddle, and then I'd get this idea for something to say, you know, three weeks later at a wrestling show, and I would run that past the football players in the huddle in the middle of a fucking game. You know, so for me, it was always like ADD, one-track mind, and I really couldn't focus on anything else, so I would just be a class clown. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So what, uh, how old were you the very first time you got on a stage and performed? You know, there you are, you have your guitar, you're tuned up, you're on stage for the first time, are you doing covers? Are you you performing cover songs? Are you, uh, you know, singing some of the original stuff you and your buddies were writing? Did you have you know, a band? Were you on stage by yourself? First time with, with two of my best friends in high school for our senior talent show, so like 17, 18, you know? That was the first okay. time we played um, Patience by Guns N' Roses. Oh, wow. 
Great song. And what was yeah. that reaction like? Like, because that's nerve-wracking, you know? And, and again, yeah, like, no, when was I was... Great. In, yeah, it was great. I didn't sing, but yeah, I wasn't singing then, but, you know, very cool. To get the whole school behind you, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. Extremely and cool. when did... What was it like? Like, I grew up in New England, and, you know, we didn't have a very large music scene in New England. There was none. Um, so, you know, what was it like... Um, growing up in in New York and having access to so much of what New York went to the music scene. I mean, you had CBGBs, you had all the punk rockers, you had the independent musicians. Like there was, it seemed like there there, there was always a place in New York City for music and up and coming musicians of all different genres. Was that something you took advantage of? at a very young age to kind of get out there and and see these performances and different stylists of music. You know, was that something you had direct access to being brought up in New York? Not really. Not until I was well in my 20s. I think my biggest thing is fault is trying to be a perfectionist and making everything good. And getting a band to laugh was always a hard thing. So, no, I did not, like, perform at, you know, maybe I performed at parties or whatever, but never went into the city and well into my mid-20s. Okay. Thing. Even though, ironically, my major in college was music performance. So, I think that, um, I'd say one of my biggest flaws is, is not perfecting it. I'm trying to be too much a perfectionist, but not perfecting the performance. Okay, that so, makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I didn't take advantage of that, doing all that stuff. Like, you know, some people just go and do it. And, yeah, that's not, that's not me. I, I take so long to do a performance I'm, I'm, and prepare for it and mentally prepare for it. So, no, that'd be, uh, that's part of still work in progress. And so, like, you brought up a good point. The hardest part was getting a band to last, making a band last. You know, and you look back on so many popular uh, music groups and bands over the last few decades that were so iconic together, but then just kind of fell apart at the seams, and you really didn't hear too much about uh, many of them after that. In your experience, why do you think it's so hard for a band to last? I mean, you have the iconic ones. You have Aerosmith. You have Van Halen. You know, you have, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses, you know, up to a couple years ago was just touring again. But, I mean, there were so many uh, music groups over the last, I don't know, number of decades that just kind of, they hit it big on their own, and then they fall apart, and you never hear from them again. So why do you think it's so hard to kind of keep that mold and and that relationship for success? Like, why do bands fall apart so frequently? You're married to whatever members of the band. You're married to all those different members. So it's like a marriage tough it's work it's ego the musicians egos are so bad i i think it's a huge factor yeah you know, who's you know oh i want to be the singer and and you know dude just thinking of my different bands who got along one constant band member and we were together like five six years and and we had you know different uh faces of that band you know, with different drummers, or he was the bass player, and he quit when, you know, the drummer in my band was just a complete dick. 
It was yeah. quit when it wasn't fun anymore. You know, and then you had band members who like, you know, thought it was rock and roll before we even made it. Like, you know, who would drink till they dropped in practice. I mean, you know, in the nineties. Like, you know, they thought that was rock and roll to drink and just pass out. Right. All the all the party favors that come along with with the industry. Yeah. yeah. So then let me ask you this. What do you think what do you think the missing ingredient is? I mean, like I said, Aerosmith has been around for forty years. You have uh you know, Guns N' Roses that had reunited and gone on tour after a, a twenty year hiatus. You have, you know, Van Halen who to this day still gels well together on stage and does sporadic tours. So what do you think the secret is to to a band's longevity that that a lot of groups that actually get on the billboard charts, get the radio play, become number one, sell albums, a lot of these bands are actually missing. What do you think that missing ingredient is, that that one component? I, I think financially. I think the number one is financial. You know, okay. number one is actually songs, good songs. Number two is financial. And then I'm just thinking off the top. I didn't think about this. I, I mean, the Stones. Why are the Stones going on tour? Mick sure. Jagger was an Mick Jagger was an economics major. I don't think Van Halen will ever get together again. Aerosmith, why they had their resurgence, whatever, twenty five, thirty years ago, was because they brought in other writers. You know, and that and that's I always wanted to be a writer. I followed the writers more recently. Nashville, you know, writing Nashville's not just country. Everyone's moving to Nashville. Um, right, he's right. You know, it's just a more friendly place. Um, so why Pearl Jam is one band that comes to mind. Why are they around after all these years? Right. I think that they exactly. all have a core common belief. I think that they, they all have that core common belief and they all know their place in the band. And that's, right. that's how it works. Which is very important because you know, you know Eddie Vedder's the face. You know Eddie Vedder's the front man. Everybody knows their role, and there's a respect. Right. There's a mutual respect, and you know this guy's good at this. This guy's good at that. You know. Sure. And they find that and common it, ground. You know. So what, yeah, Metallica. Look at the foot. There's been numerous, you know, personnel changes throughout the years of all these groups. Pearl Jam, not the only one. I mean, they been consistent now with their drummer, but they've been the core four up until probably up until 15 years ago or something like that. Let's, let me ask you this. Now, like, we are in a completely different environment, and we are in a, um, you know, we are in an environment now individually that's constantly, that's constantly, constantly run by technology and the upgrade of technology. I mean, we're constantly getting updates on our computers now, on our iPads, tablets, on our smartphones. You know, my Netflix is updating uh, its technology twice a month. Like, with this whole recharge of technology moving into entertainment as a whole, not just the music industry, not just the film industry, not the television industry as a whole, do you think that that benefits the music industry anymore? Or do you think it takes away from the music industry? 
And I'll, I'll, I have my opinion too that I'll weigh in on this, but I want to hear yours first. And, and, and real quick, and, and, and real quick, Chris, just, just to clear, you know, and what I mean by technology is across the board. I mean, you know, all the digital platforms that, you know, entertainers and performers can distribute their, their products on, um, you know, as well as, as well as social media, you know, to get themselves out there. In that way, it's phenomenal because whoever the artist or producer or whatever is in control, you know, you're, it's the first time in, in where you're in control. You don't need a label. You don't need anything. We've, we've talked about this personally. Sure. Yeah, part. absolutely. But on the other hand, it's just too much information. And, it, and it's hard for people's minds. I know by me teaching guitar and, and dealing with people, people's attention span is just nothing. You know, I remember when an album came out, I went to the store the day it came out and I picked it up. And I remember everybody went to that, to that concert. Now it's not the same thing. It's just so all over the place. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. But I know that it's good for, for the artist or the creator. The technology is good that way. I think there's just too much information. We just need a huge filter. Unfortunately, the filter, there's, um, there's filters like Spotify playlists or Netflix, but somehow still money makes it to the top or connections. So I'm not complaining about it because I'm not even, you know, right now stepping foot forward into it. I'm just kind of watching it go by to see where I fit in. That's kind of what my, my view is. But technology is definitely you're in control. No, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, as an actor and an independent filmmaker myself, you know, I remember spending the first 15 years of my life in New York City trying to figure out how I could make one of the films I wrote. And if I were lucky enough, how would I get distribution? Now, like you said, today, the, the creator is the one in full control. You can actually very much do something with your cell phone and then distribute it on iTunes or distribute it on Netflix or Amazon. And it's the very same thing with music. I mean, all you really truly need for, you don't have to, the, the days of booking studio space in the music industry seem to be by the wayside because all you really need is a dedicated room and Apple programming and some awesome sound equipment and software, and you can have a live studio in your own home. You know, yeah, so, it, it, and, and, and to be able to have control of the content you create, I think is a huge plus for any performer, creator, entertainer in this industry. I also think the distribution of, of the digital distribution, like you said, I agree very much that it needs a filter because you have, you know, very accessible distribution platforms that garner millions and millions of views and traffic each and every day like YouTube. But the downside is you have to thumb through a lot of bullshit and a lot of nonsense on YouTube to get to what it is you actually want to see. It becomes oversaturated. So I do agree that there needs to be some sort of filter somewhere in these digital platforms. And also, I mean, social media has just kind of kicked everything up to its own, to, to a whole nother level. I mean, if you have a good, well-thought-out social media marketing plan, that's as good as a billboard in Times Square. And I want you to take a second and think about how many people walk through Times Square on a daily basis. You know, and if you have a very well-thought-out social media marketing plan, Facebook, Instagram, hashtags, whatever, 
I mean, you could literally hit all four corners of this world. So, you're you know, saying the No, I'm saying, no, no, no. I'm saying if you have a well-thought-out social media marketing plan, you know, that's just as powerful as a billboard in Times Square. Now, I, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, going to... Yeah. I'm going to venture a guess 2 million people a day between the tourists and the residents walk through Times Square each day. If you have a well-thought-out social media marketing plan, again, technology that's kind of assisted in benefiting the performer, the artist, the creator, however you want to word it, you know, I, that can literally bump you up to the very next level in terms of getting your, your work of art, whatever facet of entertainment you're in, getting your work of art out there. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's a well-thought-out plan. Exactly. Yeah. So let me ask you, what are you working on now? Like, I know, you know, you and I talk a lot. We talk off, you know, we're, we're doing this podcast now, but we, we talk quite a bit. And why don't you tell everybody what it is you're working on now? I know you're doing a lot of writing. Um, you know, who are your influences for the style that you're writing now? Um, you know, and uh, and what are the concepts that you're writing about? Um, the concepts I'm writing about are just everyday life whether, you know, somebody says something that catches my eye, and I write from a title. So if I have a title that grabs me, I, I think about, you know, what angle, how can I say it differently that somebody else hasn't said it? There's hmm. only so many ways you can, you know, we talk about, love, write about songs about love, women, hope, and how many different ways can you say love? Can I say it a different way without saying love, you know? So that's the challenge of what I'm doing right now where I'm kind of like in hibernation because, yeah, all the music and, and is all great and stuff, and that all comes easy to me, the music, the the melodies, but it's the words that are going to get the listener to listen more than three times to something where, it's, you know, you're creating a, you know, you're creating a legacy in a way, and that's the type of songs that I want to write. You know, not something that's just a flash in the pan. Yeah, it would be great to have a, a hit, you know. For example, like, you know, Despacito. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything, but a global phenomenon. But at the same time, I want something that, you know, means something to me. Absolutely. So, and and what I like about, you know, I've listened to, to a couple of things that you've written. And what I like about what you've written is it's music. Like, that's what I really miss. I think that's what's missing from today's music scene is the actual instrumental music. Everything today is mixed. It's done on computers and soundboards and, and you know, it's like I miss hearing the, the, the strum of a guitar. I miss hearing the drums in the background. I miss hearing the saxophone. I miss hearing the keyboards, you know, which was, you know, for me, what made 90s music so amazing is that, you know, in the, in the 90s, you had all of these great bands that were all up and coming at the exact same time who made incredible music that didn't sound like one another but was always on the radio. You know what I mean? And they all did it with real instruments, real music. I mean, you, you know, you had Blind Melon, you had Stone Temple Pilots, you had Spin Doctors, Hootie and the Blowfish, Counting Crows, Pearl Jam. I mean, the list goes on and on. And... and no one band sounded like the other, right? No, and they all use the exact same period. instruments. Some people still hold on to the '90s. Some people say it's the greatest period. That's all yeah. I listen to. I I don't listen to today's music. I can't stand it. I can't stand. There's a lot you know, of good though. Like I mean, especially like 
that's what we're talking about is that that filter. Like, there's a lot of good yeah. music out there. It's just it costs an arm and a leg to promote it. You know, sure. Told me that it you know to 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 promote a hit song, it's not a guarantee. It'll cost a million dollars to get it on terrestrial radio, which is you know regular radio. So. Oh, I'm sure. You know, so there's a lot of a lot of factors. You know, but there's music out there. Everybody's like, oh, there's no music today. Music today sucks. Music today is better than ever, you know? It's you really think today. so? There's a lot of really good music. There's a lot of really good music. It's just the amount of time to, fi- you know, to find it. You know? And so, so the, We're so distracted. So the, At least I am. So the music that you, the music you're talking about that's still really good music, do you think that it's kind of overshadowed by, uh, you know, the Cardi B's and, you know, oh, all this nonsense that's on the radio today? Oh, it's totally overshadowed by that. Yeah. Like I listen to Eric Church, um, Butch Walker, Ryan Adams, Colson Bell. Of, yeah. I like his songs. It's not one of my go-tos, but, um, Jason Aldean. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's a little... I don't know. <laughs> you I and like I will never go to a concert together. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. It's a certain ones what I say that I listen to, you know? Right. Uh, that I'll go out and by myself and, and go to a concert by myself. You know, Jason is... Okay. There. You know, like, look at the, the uh, Star is Born soundtrack. That's doing phenomenal. That's real music. Well, it's real music, and it's doing phenomenal because they had a big movie studio behind it funding it. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it was, you know, fucking Joe Blow and Jane Smith that got together and put out that same album, I guarantee you 98% of this world would have never heard it. Yeah. Because it's not relative to today's music standards, which is mumble rap and everything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so there, there's, yeah, the mumble rap, like, wow. I can't stand it. I can't believe that's even a, a, a fucking, a thing. <laughs> I can't believe, yeah. like, you know, I think back to rap music, like, you know, and, and I, I'm talking about the rap music I was exposed to, you know, at, at a young age, which was, you know, chronic Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, N.W.A. Like that, you know, it had meaning. It was it was political. It was poetic. It had meaning. Tupac, you know, and every song on that album got the meaning across. Whereas today, it's literally like, what did he just fucking say? Yeah. What, what was that? It's ridiculous today. So. If you single-handedly could change the music industry, if you were anointed, if you were anointed to be the the next Clive Davis or Tommy Mottola or whatever it is of uh-huh. of of the music industry today, if you could change the music industry today, they came to you and they said, "Chris Mangello, you are the, you are the big swinging dick. You are the man in charge of all music. You need to make changes. What is the one thing?" that you would change with the music industry today, within the music industry today? Well, royalties are now changing, so that's that's out. So, this, you know, 
for the streaming rates and, and the copyrights. So I would change the filter. What we and me- okay, meaning what? Expand a little bit on that. Where it's not such a, um, where it's, where there's more variety, there's more access, more variety, where people have more variety, where, where, what you were complaining about, where the, the current Cardi B and the mumble rapper dominating the airwaves and iTunes charts. You look at the iTunes charts, all you see is rap in the top thing. I'm not against rap. It's just, there's not enough variety in the top chart. Right. So is it driven by money? Um, but, but, but kids are listening to all other things. And so where you're creating a vehicle for, and I'm talking off cuff here, something where there's more variety. You know, it's cyclical. So maybe pop and rap are going to go out soon. I like a lot of the pop. Lyrically, not really. Melodically, it's good. But it's just the same formula. So a new formula, is gonna, a new old formula is going to come back. So it's cyclical. You know what I mean? So, so what can I change? If there was one thing I can change, it's more variety in the top charts. Okay. I agree with that. I wouldn't mind that change at all. And if there's one piece of advice that you could give to any aspiring, you know, songwriter, musician, entertainer who who might be listening to this, if there's one piece of advice you could give, what would that be? Study money, because all wealth is taught. Study money, because all wealth is taught. That sounds like a t-shirt, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's the truth, because... Most artists don't know about money. And sure, they sure. How, they don't know how to manage money, and they sign bad contracts, and all of the above. Sure. No, that actually makes perfect sense. And, and they just think they're going to be broke, and, and it's like, it's tough. It's tough to survive when you're worried about money. You know, and be an artist when you're worried about money. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's definitely tough to put your best foot forward each and every day when the rent is due or you're behind on the rent. It's tough to put your best foot forward creatively if you mismanage your money. Yep. That I agree with 100%. Well, buddy, I definitely appreciate you coming on this podcast. That was my pleasure. Uh, we're, it was a lot of fun. We're going to wind this down. Um, is there anything you want to shout out to the listeners? You want to leave your Instagram handles, your Facebook uh, handles. Uh, I don't know if you have a YouTube channel or not, but um, is is there anything you want to leave out there so that our listeners who enjoyed this podcast, enjoyed this episode, enjoyed you as a guest, could click on and follow you? Yeah, my Instagram is SugarTunes7. That's Sugar Tunes, like music, and the number seven. Chris Mangello Music is my website, and that's pretty much it. You know, it's um. It's a work in progress right now. I'm kind of in hibernation, but I'll be back. Awesome. We look forward to seeing you come back and want you back on the show again. Had a great time talking to you. Really got a lot of insight on a firsthand musician's thoughts of the music industry, past, present, and future, which is always exciting. And I'm going to thank you, man. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. I want to thank my guest this week, Chris Mangello, once again for his time. Thank you very much, Chris, for uh, all the insight into the music industry, past, present, and future. 
Much appreciated. Looking forward to having you on the show once again in the very near future. Everybody, you can follow Chris Mangello on Instagram at SugarTunes7. That is Sugar Tunes, like music, number seven. Uh, make sure you go ahead, you follow him, follow his content, follow his life, uh, his music life, that is. I also want to thank everybody for tuning into this week's episode. It was a lot of fun walking down um, memory lane with a good friend of mine uh, who I've known for quite some time. Also want to give you guys a little insight on next, next week's episode. Make sure you tune in. I have a very funny guest next week, Mike Massimino, another friend of mine who I have actually had the pleasure of working with um, and the extreme pleasure of staying in touch with, which is sometimes very difficult to do in this business. Uh, You have seen Mike on movie We Own the Night with Joaquin Phoenix, Mark Wahlberg. You've seen him on the Stars hit show Power. You've also seen him on the Amazon hit show The Marvelous Miss Maisel. A lot of credits to his career very talented very 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 funny this guy is a character in and of himself which is why i love him so much mike massimino gonna be on the show next week make sure you tune in you don't want to miss it i am your host mark basil thank you once again for tuning in to the rise you can follow me on instagram at md basil twitter at m basil 06 you can also find me on facebook simply by searching mark basil you can find our podcast on google podcast stitcher anchor fm radio public spotify as well as apple guys we have just been approved by itunes to be on apple podcasts we are striving to be on more podcast platforms in the very near future we will keep you updated thanks again everybody for tuning in each and every week thank you again also for subscribing and downloading and listening to the rise each and every week and not missing a single episode because the rise is only gonna get better